Turn with me, if, with me, if you will, to uh, Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, as we continue our way through this gospel. As you know, we're here at the chapel, we just preach through books of the Bible, so we uh, just take the next section, whatever it is, and deal with it. At the same time here at the chapel, we have the Lord's Supper on the last Sunday of every month, an event which gives our service a very uh, pointed uh, focus on the gospel. So obviously there are times when uh, what we happen to come to in our study is not quite exactly what we, where we wish we were, as we're coming to the Lord's table. Oh, but there are other times when it seems like the Lord himself orchestrated the schedule putting all the pieces in sequence at just the right time so that we come to a text that talks about what we're doing at the table. And this is one of those Sundays, a great sermon text which clearly points us to the gospel that we celebrate in the bread and wine in a few moments. Luke chapter 18. Let me read verses 9 to 17. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. People were also bringing babies to Jesus to have him touch them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. For our consideration this morning, I'd like to divide this passage into three great truths for our consideration. Three points. The first is this. We all crave God's acceptance. We all crave God's acceptance. This parable speaks of being righteous and it speaks of being justified. Now those have become really churchy words, haven't they? No one ever talks of that much outside of church. In fact, if someone at your work says you're a really righteous guy, they probably don't mean that as a compliment. They probably are assuming self-righteousness or pompous or something of the like. So let's talk about what's going on here in terms that perhaps we understand better. And, and, and that's why I say here we learn that we all crave God's acceptance or approval. I think that's what's involved here in the word righteous and, and justified, of a right standing before God and and, 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 and being uh, um, approved by God. You know, it seems that we're born into this world longing for acceptance and approval, but we learn early on in life that acceptance is hard to get and difficult to maintain. It has a cost, sometimes a very high cost. But we all want to be loved for who we are. 
though life's just not like that normally. We, 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 we try to gain approval. We try to gain acceptance and, and vindication by what we do. But no matter how secure it might appear to be at a given moment, it can all be lost in a moment. And so we learn to perform and to sell our performance to those whose approval we seek. For we all desperately need to be accepted. This is quite easy to demonstrate. A couple of uh, examples. In an interview some years ago with Good Housekeeping, Oprah Winfrey said, I discovered I didn't feel worth anything and certainly not worthy of love unless I was accomplishing something. I suddenly realized I have never felt I could be loved just for being. Desire for acceptance and approval. The retired tennis star Chris Everett reflected on her fear of retiring. She said, I had no idea who I was or what I could be away from tennis. I was depressed and afraid because so much of my life had been defined by being a tennis champion. Winning made me feel like I was somebody. It made me feel pretty. It was like being hooked on a drug. I needed the wins, the applause, in order to have some identity. Oh, make no mistake, we all long to be approved and accepted. And if we long for human approval, how much more do we long for God's approval? In fact, we could probably say that our longing for human acceptance is only a visible manifestation of our longing for God's acceptance. In his sermon on this passage, which I listened to, uh, Tim Keller has an interesting quote from Arthur Miller's play, After the Fall. In this scene, the, the character Quentin is reflecting on his life, and here's what he says. You know, more and more, I think that for many years, I looked at life like a case at law, a system of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are or smart. Then what a good lover, then a good father, finally how wise or powerful or whatever. But underlying it all, I see now that there was a presumption that I was moving on an upward path towards some elevation where I would be justified or even condemned, a verdict anyway. I think now that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty, no judge in sight. And all that remained was the endless argument with oneself, this pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench, which, of course, is another way of saying despair. You and I crave God's acceptance, his approval, his vindication to be justified in his presence. This is our leftover longing from the fellowship with God, which was lost by the fall into sin. That is then the story of our whole life struggle. And if we do not find such approval, or if we come like this character to think God's not even there, it is truly 
just another way of saying despair. That's the underlying reality of this parable. That's why these two men came to the temple to pray. They seek God's approval, his acceptance, his vindication. But in the prayers of these two men, we see that there are two very different ways to go about seeking that approval. So we'll look at one and then the other. And the first one, this will be our second point. You cannot earn God's approval. You cannot earn God's approval. I suspect many of you have at some point in your life put together a resume. Someone had a job available. You want to present yourself in such a way that you would be approved and accepted, that you would get the job. And so we make up a resume. We, we uh, uh, list as attractively as possible all of our training and all of our accomplishments and, and people who will vouch for those great accomplishments. We're seeking to earn that employer's approval. Now we can badmouth this uh, Pharisee in the parable here, but that's what he's doing. He's seeking God's approval, and so he sets forth his accomplishments. First, he's not like others. While other people disregard God's law, he keeps it. He's not dishonest. He's not unfair in his dealings with people. He's not unfaithful to his wife. In fact, he's gone beyond what the law requires. According to the law, there was one day of fasting each year. He fasts twice a week. His piety was exemplary. Even beyond that, he notes that he has separated himself from the the ungodly, the unclean. After all, didn't God call his people to be holy, separate from sinners? And so he separates himself. This is not a wicked man. This is a most pious man. If he were in our church, we would readily elect him to our council. But Jesus does not approve of him. He rejects him. So what was deficient about such a pious Pharisee? Well, first of all, let's make it all clear right up front that it was that there's nothing wrong and there's everything right about obedience to God's word. As someone famously said, obedience is not legalism. So we should not be critical of someone who is diligent about not stealing and not committing adultery and not doing injustice. Such obedience is required of all God's people. But the Pharisee had a couple of problems. First, he trusted in himself. Verse 9 says the parable is about people who were confident of their own righteousness. The English Standard Version makes the meaning even clearer. People who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That's what he did. He trusted in himself that he was righteous. He did not just obey God's commands. He relied on his obedience to make him acceptable to God. He sought to earn God's favor. You know, there are two different ways you can reject the Savior. One is you can be a very wicked person, and you can be dishonest and rebellious, and you can live in immorality and idolatry. The prodigal son was like that. You remember, he just went off and wasted his life in riotous living. Or you can actually 
reject the Lord by being a really good person who trusts in your own goodness and thinks you can be your own savior. That's what the prodigal son's elder brother did. That's exactly what the Pharisee did in this parable. He never asked God for anything as he prayed. He didn't ask for mercy. He didn't ask for forgiveness. He didn't ask for God's salvation. In fact, he didn't even give thanks to God for his salvation. As Frederick Godet said, uh, wrote uh, concerning the Pharisee's prayer, quote, it was less a prayer in which he gave thanks to God than a congratulation which he addressed to himself. when we act like the Pharisee and trust in ourselves and make ourselves our own Savior, we challenge God to his face. We call into question whether we really need his salvation or whether we really need his, his ability to save. We compete with him for the glory, taking much of it to ourselves. That's what pride and self-exaltation does. In seeking to earn God's approval, it steals God's glory. So to trust in oneself, to think that we have earned God's acceptance somehow, is to embrace a false gospel and a false savior. It's idolatry. You cannot earn God's approval. Pharisee had a second problem, and that is that he thought himself better than others. Verse 9 says he looked down on or had contempt for everyone else. Verse 11, in a difficult phrase, says more literally, standing by himself, he prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. This is what pride and self-righteousness do. They feed on the real or perceived weaknesses of other people in order to exalt self. Look at those sinners. Look at those greedy, immoral people. They fail to keep the law. They're not as faithful as I am. They're not as deserving as I am. Therefore, I have pious contempt for them. In fact, we may even, uh, in, 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 in approach, uh, go in this direction, set up artificial ways to exalt ourselves above other people. Uh, to take our preferences and elevate them and then judge everybody else in, in terms of our preferences, make them tests of righteousness. That's what the Pharisee did. The Bible never says you have to fast two days a week. It calls for a fast one day a year on the Day of Atonement. But the fact that the Pharisee fasted twice a week made him feel superior to those who didn't fast. Exalted himself above everybody else. We do this with all kinds of religious preferences. We, we feel better than others because we sing hymns or because we don't sing hymns, we sing contemporary songs. We feel better than others because we use a certain Bible translation instead of that Bible translation other people use, or we use a certain creed instead of having no creed. We feel better because we have than others because we have Sunday evening services, or because we don't go to Sunday evening services. We feel we're better because we have a more structured liturgy, or we have a more spontaneous service, whichever. We can do this with anything. We take some personal preference even as some personal preference about our spiritual, our, our religious life, 
and assign it such importance that we look down on those who differ from us, let alone looking down on those really caught in sin. But by definition, that attitude assumes that we think we can earn or we have earned God's approval. Alan Culpaper puts it this way. Those who trust in their own righteousness will regard others with contempt. And those who regard others with contempt cannot then bring themselves to rely on God's grace. For you see, if we acknowledge that we need God's grace, we admit that the differences between us and others are quite meaningless. We're common sinners in need of mercy. We have no grounds to separate from others or to consider ourselves better. The bottom line is, you cannot earn God's approval. You cannot. But there's a better way, which brings us to our third point. God receives sinners. God receives sinners. You know, our Christianity is pretty tame these days. We often sound as if we're saying, try to be a good person and God will accept you. In fact, many Christians would be very comfortable with that. Try to be a good person and God will accept you. No, that's absolutely wrong. Well, this parable, which Jesus told, scandalized the people that heard it. We're used to hearing it. We've heard it before, so we just kind of take it in stride. But it was, this was a, a scandalous thing, Jesus said. Well, the Pharisee was the kind of man who was admired by everyone. He was a model citizen of the community. He was a godly man. He was, he was a, a, a wonderful model for everyone. The tax collector was absolutely hated by everyone. When we think of a tax collector, we probably think of, a, a, of, a, of an IRS agent. We don't probably like him that much, but realistically, he's just another government bureaucrat. Oh, but the tax collectors of Jesus' day were collaborators. They betrayed their own people. They worked for the enemy. They worked for the Romans to oppress their own brothers. They were absolutely despised. So how could Jesus picture a tax collector being approved by God as the, while the most model citizen was disapproved? What's the point? The point is, God only receives sinners. This tax collector admitted he was a sinner. He admitted it in his body language. He couldn't even bring himself to draw near. Though lifting your face to heaven was a normal stance for prayer, he could not lift his head. He beat his breast as if he were in mourning. He admitted it in his words before the Lord. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Literally, he said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. 
He doesn't compare himself with others. He doesn't, it doesn't matter to him what other people may have done. He is only aware of how lost he is before God. He has no claims to make. He has no long prayer to offer. He simply admits his hopelessness and cries out for mercy. That's all. None of us like to find ourselves standing where he stood. But the truth is, he's a lot like us. We've not kept God's law, no matter how well we may have intended to. In fact, we have broken God's commands, though others may not know the extent of our failures. And all the wonderful things people think they know about us are nothing compared to what we actually do know about ourselves. Our proper prayer is the same as the publicans. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. If you haven't been there, you ought to question whether you're proved, accepted by God, because God only accepts such sinners. Hidden in that word, mercy, is an interesting thing. Hidden there is an explanation of how God can receive sinners. There's a common word for mercy in the, uh, in the New Testament. The, word is, the Greek word is elieo. It's used many, many times. It's used just a few verses later down in verse 38 when the blind man says, Lord, have mercy on me. That's not the word the publican uses here in this parable. He uses the Greek word hiloskomai. That means to be propitious. That means to atone for sin. That means to satisfy God's justice and turn away his wrath. That's a word used of the mercy seat, that the, the, the top of the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies that separates the law within the Ark of the Covenant from the, the Shekinah glory, the presence of God over the top of the Ark. And there, once a year on the Day of Atonement, blood was sprinkled to atone before a holy God for the broke, breaking of the law, the mercy seat, the atonement cover. That heliosomai is a word used of the Lord Jesus in Hebrews 2.17. He's one who came to, to make atonement for our sins. You see, the tax collector was not just asking God, Oh God, please just look the other way. Please lower your standard. Somehow make an exception for my sin. As if it weren't so bad. No, he's asking God to show mercy in the sense of doing for him what he could never do for himself, pay for his sins. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do. According to his own testimony, he came to give his life a ransom for many. He came to reconcile us to God by the blood of his cross. He came to offer himself unblemished to God in our place. So this is our hope too. 
This is why we come back to the Lord's table again and again. Our hope is not in what we have done. Our hope is not in the thought that God somehow will lower his standard and overlook what we have done. Our hope is in Jesus' atoning death on the cross. And because of Jesus, God receives sinners. So this wretched man came to the temple empty-handed and walked away justified, approved by God, while the pious Pharisee came with his list of accomplishments and walked away disapproved. Before we close, one more thought here. Luke follows this parable with the story of people bringing their children to Jesus. But Luke's account is a very abbreviated account compared to that account in the other Gospels. Luke doesn't even mention the disciples rebuking, uh, uh, or Jesus rebuking the disciples. He, he doesn't mention uh, Jesus blessing the children. It's a bare bones account of this uh, interaction between Jesus and the children. Except that Luke adds one detail that none of the other gospel writers mention. The children, according to verse 15, the children brought to Jesus were babies, infants. Different word than any of the other gospel writers use. Now what's the point there? Well, let me share Professor Fred Craddock's explanation. He he always has such insight into this text. Verse 14 ends the parable by saying, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Verse 15 might as well have begun then with the words, for instance, or for example, and then the telling of the Jesus receiving the children. For Luke's account dramatically accents Jesus' lesson about the kingdom, that one receives it without claim and without boast, without recital of deeds or gifts. Luke dramatically accents Jesus' lesson by saying that the children brought to Jesus were infants. In spite of what many have preached, Jesus is not telling us to receive him with a childlike uh, uh, qualities of dependence and humility and trust. That's not what he's saying. Jesus is telling us that he receives sinners into his kingdom when we are as helpless as a baby. Totally unable to save ourselves. Totally unable to accomplish some good works. Totally unable even to have the right kind of faith. Dependent on the Savior for atonement, for reconciliation, for everything. Now that is amazing grace. So three truths to walk away with this morning. We all crave God's acceptance. We long to be right with him. We long to be vindicated in his sight. But you cannot earn God's approval. In fact, our most pious efforts very easily 
turn into a self-trust and a, 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 a making ourself our savior and, and, and a looking down on everybody else, thus alienating us from God even more. But because of Jesus, God receives sinners. And those who are the most undeserving most readily receive his grace. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for the gospel. We thank you, Lord, that you, unlike every religion of the world, has not set before us a great mountain to climb of trying to amass righteous deeds and, and uh, uh, acts of, uh, of, of, of godliness and somehow that we can attain a, a good enough status. Thank you, Lord that in Jesus you save sinners, that Jesus has done for us what we could not do, and that he shows mercy. And that out of that great salvation then comes a life full of gratitude and a life full of faithfulness, a life that loves obedience, and a life that wants, Lord, to walk with you and, 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 and loves living in your approval and acceptance. But Lord, help us not to get the cart before the horse. Grant that we understand we come empty-handed to receive salvation as a little baby and then we learn to live it out. Oh Lord, grant that we should see the difference between the Pharisee who looks so good and the tax collector who is so much like us. And that we would know your amazing grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.